my pleasure to welcome you here to the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you learning ways to save more and spend less, and don't let anyone ever rip you off. And I want to talk about something that you got to pay close attention to. If you are one of the many millions of Americans who have asked for forbearance from lenders because of the dislocation with so many tens of millions of Americans unemployed because of coronavirus, your credit is not supposed to be affected. There's a special provision in one of the coronavirus laws that Congress passed that as long as you have contacted your lender and been approved for forbearance, that you are then supposed to be reported as not delinquent as current. And this is ultra key. Because what's happening is what you don't know in this case can really hurt you. Lenders in large numbers are messing this up. It seems to be not intentional. At least I'm going to assume it's not intentional. But lenders have fouled this up. And the result is your credit ends up trashed so badly that other lenders may choose to kill your credit. So they see your credit score drop, let's say, 150 points. They may turn around and shut down your home equity line of credit or your credit card you have with them or whatever. So know that you need to continually monitor your credit score through the time period till you have fully recovered financially from coronavirus. And you may wonder, how do you do that? Well, Equifax, TransUnion, and Experian will try to make you think you have to pay for your score, and you don't. Today, it's really, really easy for you to be able to monitor what's going on with your credit and see either your actual FICO score or a version of an estimate of your credit score pretty much whenever you like for nothing. Now, this all started because of Discover Card that years ago, since credit card companies check your credit every month anyway, started giving people access to their scores as a benefit. And most other credit card issuers started doing so, either showing you on your paper statement, electronic statement, or by signing in to their website. As an alternative, you and I like this regardless, sign up for a free Credit Karma account you're able to monitor your credit and your scores. And so that way you have early warning. If a bank messes up, your mortgage lender messes up, whoever messes up and reports you as delinquent and devastates your credit, you immediately contact them and you say, hey, you can't do that under the coronavirus statutes. And I think you'll find that most lenders will not want to be in trouble for messing up with the law and will turn around and do the right thing. If they don't, what you should do is you file a complaint at consumerfinance.gov against the lender for not doing the right thing. Now, the other area where the greatest mess-ups have been are people with federal student loans. The Fed's contractor for the U.S. Department of Education, messed up on the credit of like five and a half million people from one published report I saw. 
and has been pretty unapologetic about it, but that's typical of the current leadership at the U.S. Department of Education. So people with most federal student loans not only were not supposed to make payments through September, they weren't even being billed for them. If they were set up for direct debit, the debits haven't taken place. And then in turn, the U.S. Department of Education trashed their credit anyway. So uh, it's much harder to fight a federal agency in a case like this. But hopefully those errors, if they've not been corrected yet, will be before the months out. Uh, one other thing I should tell you that is very encouraging for the future health of the U.S. economy, depending on the bank that's published stats on this, somewhere around approximately a third to 40% of people who requested forbearance on various loans continued to make the payments. Their financial situation did not deteriorate to the degree they thought it would, and people were able to continue to make those payments. Now, on the other hand, uh, several of the forms of coronavirus forbearance are going to end from various sources other than mortgages backed by the feds as we move through the year. And that's where the rubber's going to meet the road and people being able to pick back up and make their payments. And it's time for your questions that you posted for me at clark.com slash ask. Producer Kim, who do you have a question from? This is from Eddie in Utah. Eddie says, regarding the check scam that comes up so much, if the phony check clears my bank in a few days, why is there a second clearance required that can take four to six weeks? Isn't the money pulled from the scammer's account electronically? So what a great question as to why in the... Um, and the stuff that goes on behind the scenes with banking, why it can take up to four to six weeks for those checks to bounce, I am clueless. I mean, we long ago went to the ability for money to move between institutions uh, virtually instantaneously, and at worst, really uh, plus a day or two. So I don't get it. I don't know the answer to your question why it takes four to six weeks. But it seems to, in many cases, take that long. And that's why criminals issuing these counterfeit checks have been able to say to people, oh yeah, go ahead and deposit the check. And when it clears, send me the share of the money I need for you to refund back to me. Because they know that in most cases, the check's going to look like a good check for enough time that someone will be convinced that it really is good that it really is a good check and good funds. And that's why the second part of the con occurs where they wire money back to the crook for the supposed overpayment. And they don't know in time to prevent doing that step. Joel? Clark Kim in Mississippi says, just a quick comment about your caller who got the stimulus debit card in an odd amount. And then the letter showing the amount after the fact, my husband and I earn above the threshold for the stimulus payments and we're expecting nothing. But then we received a direct deposit of $1,281.40. And then weeks later, we got a letter stating the amount we were to have received. 
Further research showed that, as Joel said, lesser amounts are issued on a tiered basis, and it appears that the tiers are in increments of $5. So how they arrived at $1,281.40 is puzzling. But yes, married couples earning more than $150,000 can receive these stimulus payments in odd amounts, it seems like. Well, I appreciate that update. And that was so weird about the odd, odd, odd amount on the debit card that we heard about from someone. And um, I need to mention to you with the debit cards that if you do lose your debit card because you thought it was trash and you throw it away, there's a procedure where you can have a replacement issued at no cost. And if you were accidentally charged a fee, supposedly the feds are going to refund that fee to you. Kim? Hillary in Florida says, Hi Clark, my husband and I booked a trip to New Zealand in October. The trip was booked using reward points and now the Prime Minister of New Zealand has made it very clear that tourism will not return to normal for quite some time. We would like a full refund. However, the airline only wants to offer a future credit to be used within 12 months. Is there anything else I should be doing to further the action along? I would be happy with a credit that was longer than 12 months or get an actual refund. Okay, first of all, that's bonkers. These are points, right? Yeah. Frequent flyer redemption. And I know this happened to a lot of people with British Airways. That happened to me with British Airways. I've not heard of that with other airlines. Did the poster happen to say what airline it was? Yep, United United has been more of a problem than any of the other airlines in the United States. United has been defiant in following the refund rules required in the U.S., and it is just absolutely appalling after we as taxpayers gave the airlines these huge grants that don't have to be paid back to save our nation's airlines, and then United just thumbs its noses at both the laws of the United States, the U.S. Department of Transportation, and you as a consumer by being ridiculous about doing refunds when United cancels a flight or redeposit a points if you choose not to use your points. I know of no circumstance historically where when you do so far out, typically any time a day or more before travel, that your points cannot be redeposited to your account. Call back to United and tell them you want your points redeposited to your account, and if it's not done, you're filing a complaint with the U.S. Department of Transportation. And it is uh, just infuriating to me the way United is behaving. If you do all that and the DOT does not help you, the next step is to sue United in small claims court where you live. You'll have to find out who the registered agent is for United Airlines in your state. You then file against them in small claims court. And before it ever ends up in court, likely, United's uh, legal department will call you and say, what do you want? And you say, I want my points back in my account. Pretty simple. And it shouldn't have to require any of those kind of things. Joel? 
Clark James in Georgia says, I just moved into a 1,000 square foot apartment and my first power bill is on track to be $300. It seems, Whoa. All right, it seems unreasonably high. He says, I don't do anything abnormal to waste power and our AC is set to 75. Why is it that our bill is so high compared to the average and how can I fix the problem? So it may be that your landlord has a very old, not working properly, inefficient air conditioning unit. And I'm, I don't know what kind of structure you live in. If you in fact have an individual air conditioning unit but if you do have an individual unit that is where i would first look to see if there is a problem with that um if you see a unit that that you can't even tell what kind of condition it is contact your landlord tell them that your air conditioning bill seems unusually high and could they schedule a maintenance check from their air conditioning contractor. It also would help uh, socially distant, of course, ask your neighbors what kind of bills they have for electricity in a typical month, and then you'll know whether or not your bill is way out of line. Kim? Cecile in Massachusetts wants to know if you need a lawyer to refinance a mortgage. So uh, most states, yes. You have to have either a lawyer do the closing or in some states, it will be what's known as an escrow agent or a title company handles the closing. So it is state-specific how closings are done, but a professional is involved in the process regardless, and so that is a cost of doing business. That's a fee to get it done. David's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, David. Hi, Clark. How are you doing? Great. Thank you, David. How can I serve you today? Well, I'm wondering, my grandson, who's 18 and a freshman in college, worked last summer, and I was thinking of opening a uh, Roth IRA and funding it for him, but I don't want it to affect his college uh, aid. He's getting some financial aid from his school. We already have a 529 plan set up for him, and we use some of that to um, pay his tuition this semester. But I'm wondering, if I fund a Roth IRA, do you think it will reduce his financial aid from the school? No. Retirement assets generally do not impact financial aid at all. Great. So I, I'm, you I'm can only to, put uh, in you can only put in up to what he earned right, in I'm his job. That, but I want to get him started, you know, thinking about this because I know that a little bit saved early on can really add up, you know, 40 years down the road. Uh, make a huge impact. I mean, you figure even conservatively, the money you put in now doubles every 10 years. So you take that compounding effect for, for an 18 year old, and you may get five turns on that money where exactly. it doubles every 10 years. And again, that's a conservative formula a dollar put in today becomes quite an impactful dollar way down the road i wanted to say something about you with the 529 account do you own the 529 account for the benefit of your grandchild yes i do all right so as a general rule it's more to your grandson's advantage that you not use that money till he's a junior you know, that's what I was thinking, but his mother wanted to use it now, 
So I will um, pass that information on to her as well. The reason is, is that just by the act of using money not a 529 not owned by the parent can affect some of the financial aid formulas for your grandson. Okay. And that's Um, why people wait till junior year because then there's no impact um, in terms of financial aid for junior or senior year the way the financial aid forms work or system works. Okay. That's very helpful as well. Well, thanks for taking my call. Absolutely. And, you know, if you're going to do the Roth IRA, there are a number of firms that offer Roths that have no minimums, that offer the ultra-low-cost ones, and you can always default to my El Cheapo firms, Fidelity, Vanguard, and Schwab, although Vanguard, you typically will have a $1,000 minimum on one of their funds opening a Roth that you don't have that problem with Schwab or Fidelity. So glad you're with us here on the Clark Howard Show, where we together learn together to empower each other so that we can take more control of our wallets and our futures. And one of the important things for me, for you to know, is that I want to be as accurate as I can every time you hear advice from me. But I'm a human being. I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to miss things. And I need to know how to serve you better. And that's why we have Clark Stinks. It's where you get to post where you disagree with me, you feel like an answer I gave is poor, or that I did miss the big picture. And so you go to Clark.com slash Clark Stinks, you post what you'd like to say, and then on the show, typically weekly, producer Kim reads highlights from Clark Stinks right here. I should have never encouraged you to speak. You must think I'm pretty stupid. You should be ashamed of yourself. Well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you're right, pal. All right, Clark, are you ready for this? I'm ready. Okay, first up today is Neil. He says, what are you trying to pull having two different venues for Clark Stinks? You have the web form and you have the message board. Fooey. Stinks entered on the web form should automatically be posted to the message board. So those of us who frequent the boards can argue about them. It's what we're here for. Also, it appears to me that the web form stinks get preferential treatment over the message board stinks when it comes to being selected for airtime. We of the Clark Stinks message boards demand equal stink rights. I love that. So we have the two formats and two forums because one is the legacy format. The other is the uh, more current one. And Kim, that's really somebody who thinks you stink saying that you're taking from one forum versus the other. And that's not how you do it at all. Will you explain how you choose the ones? Actually, I'm just going to own that a little more. Um, Since doing it, it's been more my instinct to look at the ones that come in via email and I'm going to make a concerted effort to look at the message board more often and I appreciate you Neil for pointing that out I have one today definitely from the message boards but just so everybody knows in general so many more come through to the email form than come on the message board it's probably a ratio of 10 times as many yeah so if you go to clark.com slash clark stinks you'll immediately see a form that people they like that way of doing it. They fill out the form and they submit it. 
this only came about because people were looking for more ease of use. There are people who really like the message board format, and there are other people who wanted it to be more streamlined, and that's why um, we had talked about doing one or the other, but we decided to have both so we could serve uh, the way everybody wants it. So, uh, Kim, what do you have from somebody who's really fired up at me, though? All right, Clark, I'm, I'm going to hop oh, on this Oh, you're going to alternate. Okay, Joel. Yeah, so, so Patricia says, Clark, I've written about this before, but you're getting worse. You use the phrase, what's known as, and then say something that is common sense. I just heard you say, what's known as the activities of daily living. I'm not sure how else the activities of daily living could be interpreted any other way. I think your listeners deserve more credit for our intellectual capabilities. We are what's known as smart. I <laughs> love that. All right. So in that case, um, the reality is that's the terminology that's in most contracts for long-term care is activities of daily living. So it's like a list of things that come under that header. So the, the extra words I threw in is known as completely unnecessary and that's why I would have said it. Kim? All right. This is from Larry. He says, not a stench, just a little whiff. Clark, you often mention the FDIC and NCUA insurance limits of 250000 but I never hear you mention that it's different for joint account holders. It's per named account owner or a total of 500000 if it's a couple. Granted, there may not be many of your lucky listeners that have that much money to worry about, but if a couple does have a joint account and their balance is something over two fifty, then their account is still insured to the total amount up to five hundred. A problem we'd all like to have. Well, I thank you for that. And there are a number of strategies that people employ, including using the CDARS program that allows you to go way, way, way beyond the quarter million dollar limits. But you'll hear me be very, very careful to ever get green light people thinking beyond the quarter million at a single institution because people will rely on guidance or advice from someone who works at the bank and has happened in the uh, banking scandals that led to all the bank takeovers and failures in 2007, 8, and 9, the courts decided that it didn't matter that you relied on even a written communication from a bank officer on how the insurance worked. If they were wrong and you were above the limits, you lost the money. So it's a great problem to have to have more than quarter million. Just make sure you verify on your own, not based on what a bank officer says, that this good problem of having a ton of money is truly covered by the procedures or naming you've used to have beyond the quarter million. Joel? Clark Linda says, I love you, but I think you missed the mark on this one. You often talk about people contributing to a Roth IRA, which is great and spot on advice. Where you miss the mark is I hear you often say that it's a good vehicle for saving for college or for your first home. I realize that you could technically do this and pull out your contributions at any time, but that's not how to win with your Roth. Save for your first home in a savings account or in a 529 plan for college. You can only put in a certain amount of dollars per year for your Roth, 
and you're rightly saying you can't borrow for your retirement, so do not use your retirement dollars for other purposes. Please, please, please stop stop telling people this. It's not a good strategy and should only be used in the case of an emergency or foreclosure situation. Thanks for listening to my rant. You know, I agree with everything you posted. So let me tell you how I end up uh, in in this thing of behavioral economics. So I will tell someone not to save for their kid's college education until you're in a position to put aside the max in a Roth IRA, that that comes first. If you can't get to $6,000 a year into a Roth, you can't afford to save for your kid's college. But the truth is, people aren't comfortable with that in a lot of cases. They put their own personal financial security a step down from helping to pay or pay entirely for a kid's college. So what I then like to do is encourage them still, if they're not saving the max in a Roth, to put the money in there so that if later maybe their child doesn't go to college or their child gets a scholarship or any of a number of circumstances that occur, they go to work for an employer who pays for college, any of those things, military pays for college. So that way the money's already in the Roth and can continue growing tax-free. It certainly is accurate everything you said, and I don't want people to think of a Roth as a piggy bank to raid, but when people are dealing with finite resources, many times the balance tips to use the Roth for more than one purpose, depending on the attitude of the person who I'm responding to. Kim? All right. This is from Matt. He says, I love the show, but I can't stand how on one hand you rail against reckless banking. Yet on the other hand, you seem to give reckless driving a pass. Over the years, I have heard you complain about police speed traps and red light cameras as merely revenue generating sources for local government. Even if that was their sole purpose, you must keep in mind that they are only collecting voluntary taxes meaning no one is ever forced to drive over the speed limit or to run a red light. Would you be against the use of stings or cameras to catch fraudulent activities within the financial sector if their only purpose was to generate revenue? I understand there are jurisdictions out there that use less than savvy tactics, but the way you encourage listeners to use speed trap and red light camera avoidance gadgets, sites, apps, feels like you're helping people avoid their responsibilities as a driver. I, I appreciate that very much. And I think I've learned something from the time period that a lot of states were on tight lockdowns. And for a while in a number of jurisdictions, the amount of traffic on freeways was down by massive percents. And even though the number of accidents then declined by historical numbers, I mean, nothing like this has ever happened with the great decline in the number of accidents. That's why people have been getting these rebates on their auto insurance. The number of fatalities on the road uh, around the country went way up per miles traveled because people, once they had that wide open asphalt or concrete started driving at crazy crazy speeds in many cases well in excess of 100 miles an hour leading to a massive increase in single vehicle accidents 
So it seems that uh, given the freedom to think we're on a German Autobahn, we don't know how to control ourselves. So I'm not as strident about uh, controlling people's speed electronically as I have always been simply because of the tragic losses of life we've had around the country from people driving extreme excessive speeds. Joel? Clark John says, my employer owes me compensation for work from home using my personal computer and internet. Why don't we ask them to pay for my coffee and sugar packets since they're not providing those during my workday too? There's little to nowhere on the home computer and most internet plans aren't resulting in additional charges from the regular monthly plan before this crisis. Actually, most are saving time and money by not commuting to work. So based on your logic, wouldn't it be reasonable for an employer to expect compensation for the gas not being used from the daily commute? Perhaps they're due a, a portion of the auto insurance rebates being issued as well. We're all in this together. This is not the time to get petty as we work through these challenging times. Thank you for that post. Now, I'll give you a counterpoint that came up after that conversation, and it's that uh, many employers want people to have company-issued computers. That's something uh, you and Kim both have, right, that, the, that they're company-issued to make sure yep. that the, what's available on them is not as vulnerable to hackers and being able to be on the virtual private network, the VPN. So uh, I still feel, though, that we are using our home Internet to work for the convenience of the employer and ourselves. And we're putting more wear and tear on our computers. I think that even a partial reimbursement in some form for what we pay for Internet and maybe some form of technology allowance is a reasonable ask. And I hear your perspective, and I appreciate that as well. And I want you to know that I'm so grateful to those of you who do take the time to post on Clark Stinks because it's really important that you know that this show is different than a typical talk show. It's all about you being able to guide me, guide each other, and make sure I don't have the last word because Joel gets the last word now. What do you have for one last Clark Stinks? Uh, Clark Steve says, a 26-year-old lady looking for health insurance. You got to think outside the box, Clark. You should have suggested the faith-based Christian groups where the medical cost is shared by the members. Better than insurance and no executives are being paid millions off your premiums. Uh, Thank you for that post. Now, the faith-based medical cost sharing things are not the same kind of coverage as traditional health insurance, but they are much, much cheaper there are limitations on what they pay, and there can be problems when they run out of funds. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. 
Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Stephanie's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Stephanie. Hi, Clark. Thank you so much for taking my call. Certainly, Stephanie. Well, I'm hoping to get your opinion on something because your opinion matters uh, to me. But my mom is pushing 70, her and her spouse, and they're on a fixed Social Security income of only like $2,000 a month. And they owe about 118000 on their house in Fort Lauderdale. And they really want to get out of the South Florida area and um, move to more Central Florida, Sebring area. Um, there's some modular home retiree communities up there. And they, I think the, they run around twenty to 30000 a piece, roughly, depending on how nice you get. Uh, but you have to pay a land rent. And um, the average land rent is anywhere from the high sixes to maybe $1,000 tops. Um, and I'm just wondering if this is high a bad idea. High sixes to 1000 per month? Per month, yeah. Okay, can I make an alternate suggestion? Yes, that's you why I'm calling. You mentioned the Sebring area, and when you look inland in central Florida, there are a number of real estate communities where instead of uh, having like a ground lease and then the cost of the modular home, you buy an actual uh, modest, simple home that mm-hmm. you own the land and you own the home and over time it will be a much more cost effective thing than going into a community where you've got the ongoing land lease because those prices are so variable and people get into one and you can't really move those modular homes so you become a prisoner of the whims of whatever would be charged in that community Okay, that's and, what I was worried about. And I don't know, are you familiar with a lot of those inland retirement communities? I am not. I live in Alaska. She lives in Florida, so I have not had a chance to, you know, assist in looking around. I've just gone online and looked. Could you manage to live further from your mom? <laughs> I know. <laughs> I guess well, you could go to Hawaii that, and you'd be further. <laughs> that that would be nice. Um <laughs> My concern is that if they only get around, say, 75000 equity when they sell their current house... Oh, they um, could buy a place for that. Okay. And I mean, it's not going to be a fancy place. It'll be a cinder block property, probably. It'll be um, mm-hmm. you know one story on a slab. But yes, those kind of things are available in areas of Central Florida because the land is... Uh, is it's land that no one ever saw value in till okay. the land became part of these very affordable retirement communities okay great so I, I, I just don't I do not yeah I just don't like any of those situations with a modular home where you don't own the land that home sits on because that makes you a sitting duck and if all they've got's the two thousand a month you said for yes. Uh, they can end up with more than that and eventually and what they have to pay for that land lease. You're listening to The Clark Howard Show. Thanks for joining us today. The Clark Howard Show is produced by Kim Drobes, Joel Larsgaard, Deborah Reese, and Jim Ayers. And remember, 24 hours a day, we're there to serve you at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com.